say good morning to you all. Certainly glad to have each and every one of you here, especially those of the LaPrada family here at the Worship Assembly. We're also thankful for any visitors that are here. We know there's other places you could have been, and we certainly appreciate you joining us in our Worship Assembly, and we hope that you are edified and encouraged uh, from this assembly today. As we said already, I want to say Happy Father's Day to all the fathers that are in our assembly. I hope that uh, each one of us can be thankful for the fathers that we have in our lives, and I hope that you've had an opportunity to express your appreciation to them. I recognize that there are some that don't have their fathers on this side of life, but I hope that you have good and positive memories that you're able to reflect on. I also recognize that for some, this holiday isn't so great a day. For whatever the reason, the good memories aren't there. And I hope that you are at least comforted by the fact that we have a God who is a Heavenly Father to us all, a Heavenly Father who cares for us, a Heavenly Father who loved us, loved us enough to send His only Son to the cross to atone for our sins. The fathers, this is your day. And with that comes a lesson from the pulpit that is focused on you. And yes, you are in the spotlight this morning, and with today's message, I hope my goal is to encourage you and build you up. I hope today's message is encouraging to those fathers who are striving to walk in a godly way. Hope that this lesson builds you up and even challenges you to be what God has called you to be. I hope that this serves as good instruction and direction for those that aren't fathers yet and for those who are learning what it means to be a father, a godly father. But why does this message matter to you if you aren't a father? Young people, you will see in scripture today what a godly father should be and hopefully gain more appreciation and respect for the father in your life. Young ladies, I hope you will see in scripture some of the qualities of a godly father and better understand what you should look for in the character of a young man as you are dating and considering marriage one day. But finally, may we all appreciate godly fathers and may we encourage them to fulfill their responsibilities. The main text for this morning is going to be found in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 10 through 12. However, before jumping right to the text, we're going to take a moment to get some background and context. 1 Thessalonians is the letter written by the Apostle Paul to the church that met in the city of Thessalonica. Macedonia was a Roman province, and Thessalonica was the capital city and a major seaport. The city was quite large, for it had a population of about 200,000 in the days of Paul. In Acts 17, we can read that Paul visited this city while on his second missionary journey. And this chapter reveals to us in Acts some of the background information for this letter. Prior to coming to Thessalonica, Acts 16 reveals that while in the city of Troas, God gave Paul a vision. A vision, a vision in the night of a man begging him to come to Macedonia. And so immediately after seeing this vision, Paul arose and he started heading in that direction for he knew that the Lord had called him and those traveling with him to preach the gospel there. Philippi is the first major city that they reached in Macedonia. They had some success while preaching in Philippi, but they also encountered opposition. An uproar occurred and Paul and Silas were beaten and they were thrown into prison without a trial. Even with this opposition to the preaching of the gospel, they were able to share the gospel with their own jailer 
and brought salvation to him and his family. After the officials of the city realized that they had broken Roman law by beating Paul, a Roman citizen, without a trial, they tried to run Paul out of town as fast as possible. And so that brings us to the 17th chapter of Acts, with Paul and his companions arriving in the city of Thessalonica. Now, in cities where there was a Jewish synagogue, it was Paul's custom to begin his preaching there. The Bible records that for three Sabbath days, Paul reasoned with the Jews out of the scripture, giving evidence that Jesus is the Messiah. Verse 4 says that some of them believed and joined Paul and Silas. In fact, it says a great multitude of devout Greeks and many of the leading women believed. However, the Jews that didn't believe were envious and they wanted to stir up trouble. So they rounded up some hard heads in the city and they made a commotion. Now this mob went looking for Paul and Silas at a man's house named Jason, who was probably a new Christian. And when they didn't find Paul and Silas there, they brought out Jason before the city leaders and they accused him of housing people that were turning the world upside down and they had brought this trouble, this troubling message to Thessalonica. So Paul and Silas, they were accused of teaching things that defied the laws of Caesar and they were even accused of saying that there was another king besides Caesar whose name was Jesus. Now this is a serious accusation and the city leaders were concerned. So Jason was forced to pay a bond or security, probably guaranteeing that Paul and Silas would leave town. Verse 10 records that the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away under the cover of the night to the city of Berea, about 45 miles away. In due time, Paul received from Timothy a good report of what was going on in Thessalonica after he left. And so he wrote this letter in response to that good report that he heard. This background helps us to better understand what is going on in the letter to the Thessalonians. And so as we get to the, the first chapter, it's really a summary where Paul wrote about how the Thessalonians became followers of Christ even as they suffered affliction. They turned from idolatry to serve the true and living God who raised his son from the dead and will deliver all his from eternal wrath. In chapter 2, Paul summarizes his brief stay there in Thessalonica as he writes about what set him apart from the false teachers that the Thessalonians had encountered before. He says, we didn't come to you in vain nor in fear, but we, we were bold in our God to proclaim the gospel to you amidst much conflict and opposition. He says, our appeal to you was not in error. We weren't deceitful in our presentation of the gospel, nor did we come to you with flattering words, seeking personal gain or trying to please men. He says, we were gentle among you, gentle like a mother nursing children. You know, uh, he says, you know what we went through in Philippi. Well, how we were beaten and jailed. He says, and yet we came to you, we came to your town with the same gospel message because the message we have is true and it is approved of God. He says, yes, we encountered opposition in your city also in Thessalonica. He says, but we're not working to receive a monetary reward or praise from you. Our reward is in heaven. So we did our best not to be a burden on you and not make demands of you as we could have. As apostles, they could have sought financial support from the Thessalonians. And that is a right that they had, but they declined that right. If we look back to Acts 18 and 3, we understand that Paul was the tent maker by trade. So that is likely what he did to not be a financial burden on the saints of Thessalonica. And so as we get to verse 7, and later in verse 11, Paul makes an analogy 
of a mother and a father as he describes his love and care for the Thessalonians. In verse 7, he says, We were gentle among you as a mother, as a mother is with her own children. And this helps us understand the kind of love that Paul had for them. What do nursing mothers do? They sacrifice. Sleep is sacrificed. Time is sacrificed. They give of themselves for the child. They have such love and affection for the child that they're willing to do anything for the child. And that's how Paul describes his love for them. He says, we sacrifice for you. We could have leaned on and depended on you for food and necessities. He says, but no, we labored and we were careful not to be a burden to you. We worked with our hands to provide for ourselves and we ministered to you. All this, he says, we did day and night and we asked nothing of you, all for your benefit. Our motives were pure, and our actions reflect that. So loving was he that in verse 8 he says he was willing to offer himself so that they might be saved. And we know that these aren't empty words. But Paul expressed similar sentiment in Philippians 2 and 17 where he said he was willing to be poured out as a drink offering. And again in 2 Timothy 4 and 6 when he said he was ready for his life to be offered as he recognized his end was near. Yes, his willingness to sacrifice for the cause of Christ was real. And finally, we get to verses 10 through 12, which are the verses we will focus on for the remainder of this lesson. And this is where Paul gets, gets into the analogy of a father. And it says, Ye are witnesses, and God also, how holily and justly and unblameably we behave ourselves among you that believe. As you know, how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you, as a father doth his own children that you would walk worthy of God who had called you into his kingdom and glory. In these verses, Paul describes his conduct and his actions while he ministered to those in Thessalonica. We can see the care and the concern that he had towards the people as he wanted them to grow and become mature Christians. And so as I look at these verses, there are two things that I want us to notice this morning. First, in verse 10, Paul wrote how he lived a godly life before them. He lived a life that was an example for them to look to and to follow. And second, in verse 11, he wrote, as a father treats his own children, he treated them by exhorting them, comforting them, and charging them to live upright lives. Paul gives us a snapshot of what a good father is, of what a godly father is. Obviously, this is not an exhaustive list of the qualities and characteristics of a father, because a father is so much more. Fathers are providers for the home. Fathers are protectors for the home. Fathers are leaders in the home, the head of the home. But these verses are just a snapshot of what a good, godly father is. And we will spend some time elaborating on these two points this morning. Paul said his life was an example for the Thessalonians to look to and follow. In verse 9, he says, you remember our labor. You remember our hardships. He says, we labor day and night for you. He says, you are witnesses. In other words, he's not just saying what he thinks he did. He's saying, you know what we did because you saw us. You're witnesses of it. And not just you, but God also is our witness. In verse 10, Paul says that he and his fellow workers behave holily, justly, and unblameably before the Thessalonians. Now, those are some words that we don't normally hear or say every day, but Paul uses these three adverbs to describe their conduct in Thessalonica. 
holily describes living in a holy or devout manner, in a manner that is pleasing to God and according to his commands. In Leviticus 19 and 2, and in 1 Peter 1 and 16, it is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy. God is holy. He is our standard in holiness, and he calls for us to be holy. In Leviticus 19, we can read where God gave the Hebrews his law, and he called them to choose righteous living to pursue, to pursue holiness and to shun evil. Today, we don't live under the old law of Moses, as in the days of Leviticus, but we do live under the law of Christ. Today, God calls for us to live in a manner that is pleasing to him in accordance with the law of Christ, and that is how Paul lived holily before the Thessalonians. Justly. The word justly describes Paul's behavior towards his fellow man. He was just, he was upright, he was honest, and he was fair. It speaks to his character. For example, Paul spoke about how he labored with his own hands so that he could provide for himself and not require any sort of financial support or be a burden on the Thessalonians. He did this for their benefit. He considered them, he considered what they needed rather than what he deserved or what he was owed. He was just and upright before the Thessalonians. Finally, unblameably. This is the only time that unblameably is used in the King James Version translation of the Bible. This word comes from the word blameless, which means innocent, without fault, or guilt. In 1 Timothy 3, we can see that blameless is one of the qualities of an elder or bishop in the church congregation. This word also describes the character of a person. Blameless doesn't mean sinless, for we all fall short of God's glory. It simply means that as Paul labored to spread the gospel, no one could find fault in him for how he conducted himself. Sure, people can always make charges or accusations against a blameless person, but the charges just don't stick because they aren't true. From these words, we see that it is with impeccable character that Paul and his companions conducted themselves amongst the Thessalonians, and everyone saw it. And living this way, he sets the example for them to live by. Talk is cheap, and it's easy to say what people should do, but Paul lived how they should live. It wasn't a facade. There was no acting or playing or deceit. He was authentic, and he lets them know that as he reminds them that they saw and they witnessed how he lived. Yes, Paul walked the walk, and he points to himself as a standard, and he encourages them to live up to it. So as we relate this behavior of Paul to fathers today, this is how a father lives before his children. He lives a life of example before his children. He models good behavior for his children. He models respectable behavior for his children. He models good work ethic for his children. He is the example that he wants his children to look to and learn from. In 1 Corinthians 11, there we go. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul said to the Corinthians, be ye followers of me, even as I also am of Christ. To a people that were struggling with living godly lives, Paul wrote to teach the Corinthians how to live in a world that was consumed with idolatry. He taught how he denied his rights as an apostle to further the spread of the gospel. And he taught about the kind of life that he lived in order to build up others. And then he tells them, follow me 
as I follow Christ. That means that Paul, as he was striving to live as Jesus lived and to do as Jesus commanded, he was truly able to say, look, look at me, follow my example as I'm following Christ. As fathers, may we live a godly life, a life of example before our children, that we can say, look to me and follow. We know that we aren't perfect. We know we fall short, and our children are going to see it. And when they do, we have the opportunity to teach, to teach that we serve a God who forgives and continually cleanses us of unrighteousness as we walk in the light. We can ultimately point our children to Christ because he is the standard that we ourselves are looking to. But when we fail to do this, when we fail to show our children a godly example, the world is ready to step in and give our children an example to look to. The world is full of ungodly ways to live that are glamorized and even glorified. We often see people who live ungodly ways sometimes put on a high pedestal because of their sinful lifestyles. Yes, the world will provide many examples for your children to look to. And that is why it is so important for you to be the godly example for your children to look to. Moving on from that, in verse 11, Paul writes, You know how we exhorted, comforted, and charged every one of you, as a father does his own children, to walk worthily of God who has called you into his kingdom and glory. Paul says he exhorted them, comforted them, and charged them to live godly lives. So let's look at each one of these words and what each of them entails. Exhort. The word exhort means to call to one side, to come along the side of, encouraging, persuading to do that which is right. Yes, as Paul lived amongst the Thessalonians, he proclaimed the gospel. He exhorted and he encouraged them to do what was right. He pointed them to the path of righteousness, the same path that he himself was on, and encouraged them to get on that path and to stay on that path. We see the principle of exhorting and encouraging in Scripture also. Let's look to the book of Proverbs. The majority of Proverbs is written by King Solomon, the son of David. Son of David. God gave him such wisdom that no one before him nor after him would ever have as much wisdom as he did. Over and over throughout the book of Proverbs, Solomon exhorts and encourages his son to heed the wisdom that he's trying to pass on to him. He says, my son, hear the instruction of thy father. My son, forget not my law. Hear, O my son, and receive my sayings. My son, attend to my wisdom. My son, keep my words. My son, be wise and make my heart glad. Just these subset of verses from Proverbs, we can see a father encouraging and exhorting his child to hear his instruction, to pay attention, to heed the instruction so that he could benefit and even prosper from the wisdom that his father was passing on to him. Fathers, exhorting is one of our responsibilities. Exhorting and encouraging and imploring our children to do the right thing is our responsibility. And when we don't, there is a breakdown. Because sinful, sinful behavior is then seen as acceptable. Sinful behavior is accepted as normal. And then, with that kind of behavior is condoned and accepted, there's a breakdown in the home, there's a breakdown in the family, and unfortunately it doesn't stop there. The bad things in the home leave the home and they find their way into the church. They make their way into the schools and they make their way into all society. This shouldn't be surprising to anyone. 
turn on the news, go visit the schools, talk to a police officer. The breakdown we see in society is evident. I venture to say that a good portion of it all started in the home because something was missing. In many cases, the father's responsibility was neglected. As Solomon exhorted and encouraged his son, we must do the same for our children, exhorting and encouraging them to live godly lives. Now let us consider how Paul comforted the Thessalonians. To comfort is to console, to calm, to cheer up, to give relief to the discouraged, dispelling their grief and imparting strength in them. Now we've already read about what happened when Paul came to Thessalonica to preach the gospel. He ran into opposition that opposed the church and the whole city was in an uproar. Now think about what these new Christians were dealing with. Before Paul came to town, life was normal, or life was probably fine. But now that they've heard the gospel, heard the gospel message about the Messiah, now that they have believed this message, now that they have become Christians, life has gotten much more difficult. There was strife between these new Christians and those who opposed the church. They were surely strained relationships with the people in the city. These new Christians surely weren't welcome in the Jewish synagogue anymore. And that surely impacted any close relationships that they had with other Jews in the synagogue. There were probably the rifts and divisions amongst families. There were surely hardships that these new Christians had to endure. As the Bible said, the whole city was against them. Verse 6 of chapter 1 even speaks to this as it says that they received the word in much affliction. The opposition turned up the heat on the church. The persecution was just beginning for them. And we know from the reading that it got so hot that Paul had to leave town in the middle of the night, most likely for his own safety. Acts 17 and 13 shows us the persecutors were so intent on stirring things up as they even followed Paul to the next city and continued to stir up trouble. If they were willing to follow Paul 45 miles away to Berea to persecute him, then I'm sure that they continued to bring that same hostility against the Christians there in Thessalonica. Leading up to Paul's abrupt departure, there had to be some consoling and comforting from the apostle. I expect that it was necessary for him to comfort and encourage these new Christians as they were facing this persecution and trials and challenges because of their faith. Yes, Paul was invested in their lives. He loved them and he nurtured them as a mother does her own children. As a matter of fact, that's why this letter was written. Paul was worried about them. He was hoping the trials that they faced wouldn't be so much that they would fall away from the faith and his labor would be in vain. So when he heard from Timothy of their faithfulness, he wrote this letter to them to comfort them even more and encourage them to continue on in the faith. That's what I envision here as Paul says, as a father, he comforted them. As we look to scripture for an example of comfort, we can look to God who is a comforter to all of us. In Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, he wrote, Blessed be our God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. He's saying here that as we look to, as we lean on, and as we depend on God, and as we face our own trials and afflictions, God comforts us, and he consoles us 
so that we can then comfort others with the same comfort that we have received from God. God knows our afflictions. He knows our fears. He knows our concerns, and he is able to comfort us like no one else can. We can be comforted by the reading of God's word and understanding his faithfulness in times past. We can be encouraged by what he has done and the promises that we read in his word. We can be comforted by the people that God brings into our lives, those who come into our lives to minister to us with encouraging words, with their own deeds, with their wisdom, or their life of example. This comfort that we receive builds us up so that we are then in position to comfort others that need it. Comforting is a responsibility that fathers have today. Because of the life experience and wisdom that we have attained over the years, we can anticipate and we can understand the trials and the challenges that our children face. We are in position to comfort them, to console them, and encourage them. But being able to do this requires that we know and we understand our families. We need to know our children as individuals. We need to know and understand their talents and their abilities, their strengths and their weaknesses, their unique personalities, so that we can reach and encourage them in a way that is unique and helpful for them. I remember when it seems that the whole nation shut down in March of 2020 because of the pandemic. Many of us were introduced to school from home. We learned about Zoom and Skype and Teams meetings. This was a big adjustment for my family, as I'm sure it may have been for yours and it didn't impact our children in the same way. My oldest daughter is pretty self-driven and self-motivated. And so we got her set up with her laptop and the things that she needed for school. She carried on with minimal interaction from my wife and I. Of course, she was a junior in high school, so that probably uh, played a part in that. However, for our younger daughter, online school was initially a challenge. She was struggling with it, and I'm sad to say it took me a while before I recognized it, before I recognized the problem. We eventually noticed that she wasn't completing some of her assignments and was just generally falling off. Now, of course, like most people, we kept expecting things are going to return to normal. Things, the pandemic's going to go away. It's going to end. And so we weren't too worried about it. But as time went on, we realized they weren't going back to school. We need to figure out this remote school thing. Otherwise, uh, she was really going to fall far behind. So I sat down. And I talked with her about the challenges that she was having. The challenges she was having in school. And I came away from that conversation pretty upset with myself because I wasn't giving her what she needed. She was crying out for help, but I wasn't seeing the signs or hearing her. We applied a one-size-fits-all solution, and we told her, be like your sister. But the fact is, she isn't her sister. She operates differently. She thinks differently. She's motivated differently. She works differently. And I realized that she needed more structure and more direction. So she and I got out a piece of paper, and we drew out a plan and a daily schedule for her. During this time, you're going to be in this class, and you're going to take a 10-minute break, you're going to do this. And just mapped out our whole school day. And then things got better. She needed that kind of structure, and that's what she needed to thrive. Now, don't get me wrong. She didn't come away enjoying online school and being away from her friends but she started to excel again, like we expected her to. It took me understanding what was wrong and understanding her strengths and her unique personality. It took consoling her, picking her up from where she had fallen, 
comforting her, finding a way to put the trial behind her, and helping her to succeed. Fathers, comforting is one of our responsibilities. It's not just for mothers. We can do it too, just as Paul said. We must be ready to comfort and console our children so that they can reach their full potential in life, especially in God's service. And finally, charged. As we consider how Paul charged the Thessalonians as a father, let's look at what this word means. The Greek word used here has a number of definitions, but one of them is to implore. I'm encouraged to go with that definition because that is how the New American Standard and a few other Bible translations translated that word. To charge someone is to implore them to do something, to insist, to urge strongly. To me, charge is similar to encouraging someone, but it has a lot more force behind it. When I charge you to do something, I'm no longer just encouraging you to do something, but in a serious manner, I am urging you to do what I know you can do. So you can and you should meet this expectation that I've set for you. In this context, Paul urged them, and he even insisted that they live lives that honor God. He made it clear that this was his expectation for them. In his second letter that he wrote to the church, he even said, if there is anybody walking disorderly and not living the way that I taught, you should withdraw yourselves from them and not be around those people. Yes, Paul charged them in a loving manner to do what they needed to do to live as the people of God. In the same way, a father charges his children. A godly father wants what is best for his children. He knows what is best for his children. He knows what they are capable of. And with this knowledge, he charges them to rise up to where they should be. I picture a father as a trainer or a coach for an athlete. He's that boxing train, uh, trainer who is there in the corner. He knows the potential of his boxer, and he's not going to allow that boxer to give up to settle for less than what he, can, what he can do. He's going to push him to do better and urges him or charges him to do it. But it's all done in a loving manner. A father is just like that. He's a trainer who is always in his child's corner. He's there charging the child to do what is best for their well-being and what is best for them spiritually. As I wrap up my comments on these verses, I hope that we all have a better understanding of what a godly father does for his children. He leads a life that is an example for them. And he builds up his children by exhorting and comforting and charging them to live an upright and godly life. I've been a father for 20 years, which is nothing compared to the years that many of the men in this congregation have. So I sought out an older father in the congregation, and I asked him this question. When does this job end? When does the job end of being an example uh, the exhorting, encouraging, uh, charging, when does it end? When can we say job is done, mission accomplished? Is it at 18, 21, or when they move out? But this older father surprised me with his answer. He said the job never ends. And let me tell you the reason why, because that is what surprised me. He said the job never ends because there's always another generation coming up that we must serve. Thank you, Eugene, for that insight. Fathers, you'll always have this role in your own children's lives, but you'll also have the opportunity to be that in the lives of the next generation, as well as others that you have an opportunity to influence. 
you never stop living a life of being an example. You never stop encouraging, comforting, and charging. Just imagine what it would be like if every father did his part. What would life be like in this land? How different would things be in our homes, in schools, and in society if every father applied these godly principles? But we can't control what our neighbor or anyone else does. We're responsible for our own house, so let us strive to do our part with our own house. And if you're in position, use your influence to reach those in your sphere of influence. All of you men who are great-grandfathers and grandfathers and uncles and brothers and brothers in Christ, I encourage you to be an influence in the lives of those around you. May God strengthen you in this important role. As we come to a close, let us consider the love of our Heavenly Father. Romans 5 and 8 says, But God commended his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement. Though we were sinners and unworthy, God developed the ultimate plan of salvation, the life of Jesus Christ. Jesus was sacrificed for our sins, and in the process, we were reconciled to God. Yes, salvation is available to all. Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? Do you want his sacrifice to atone for your sins? Are you ready to turn from a life of sin to God? Are you ready to have your sins forgiven? You can do that today. And we encourage you to do it. With your submission and obedience to the will of Christ, we will baptize you this morning for remission of sins, and you will be in a life new in Christ this very day. We encourage you, we implore you to not neglect so great a salvation. All you need to do is take that first step coming forward to the front. And finally, if there are any other requests that you have for the church, you can certainly make those known now as we stand and sing the song that has been selected. Now the